Our gospel lesson this morning is found in Matthew chapter 6. We're reading beginning in verse 25 through 34. Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin, yet I tell you, even Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all of these things. And your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. As we come to your word this morning, we confess our need, that we are in need of your spirit to give us light and understanding, that we be taught by you and that we, we, we be led into the path of truth. We ask that you would speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. Amen. If you have a Bible available or in your bulletin, you can follow along in Psalm 121. This is our summer series, Working Through the Psalms of Ascent, the psalms used by Jerusalem pilgrims on their yearly journeys, three times a year they would travel to Jerusalem, and these were their traveling songs, the greatest hits of Israel. From time to time, I'm asked by people who attend Christ Church, Chuck, why do we seem to have a preference for old hymns? Why do you seem to prefer those over the more popular, newer stuff? People are normally a little bit hesitant to ask, but perhaps you've even asked the same question in your mind, and I really don't mind at all. It's a good question, and it provides a really great opportunity to have an important ecclesiological discussion. There's so many things that come to mind about how to answer that question, things about the importance of a connection to the saints who have gone before us, things about the importance of understanding the dangers of the present moment. Important things to discuss about being a multi-generational church and how you encourage a group of saints that spanned 80 plus years to do one thing together with one heart and mind. Important things about artistic beauty and what God has created us for. Important things about theological integrity. All these things flood my mind when I'm asked the question, about why do you seem to prefer old hymns. But I typically spare you that very long, arduous journey to discuss all those things because there's one place to begin in talking about why perhaps we 
prefer old hymns. It's not that we don't sing new hymns. Some of us are even engaged in attempting to write some of those things to bring an expression to our faith with artistic beauty. It's not that these are shielded out. But old hymns have one distinct, very important advantage over the newer stuff. And that is just that Darwinian principle of survival of the fittest. You see, the church has written many hymns. In fact, one of my favorite hymn writers is an English pastor named John Newton, who you no doubt are familiar with. We sing several of his hymns, Amazing Grace, Great God from Thee, some of our favorites that we hold in the church today, written by this former slave trader, English pastor, one of the, the greats of all time. But here's the thing. John Owen wrote a whole collection of hymns. They're little known. You wouldn't know the title. They're called the Only Hymns. And when you read through them, you understand why we don't sing them. (laughs) They're really not great. (laughs) But hidden in the midst of those hymns are these classics. And this is what happens over time, is that there is a selection process in which the hymns that resonate theologically and the music that brings beauty to it and an expression of prayer that God's people have selected those and those have risen to the top. And that's the beauty of traditional hymnody. We, of course, can value things that are beautiful written in the moment, and we sing those as well. But this is the advantage, is they've gone through a tried and tested process. And when it comes to the Psalms of Ascent, you're dealing with exactly the same dynamic. Fifteen hymns, poems and songs written in ancient Israel that rose to the top. They were collected into a special book called the Songs of Ascent for the journey. They were a traveling hymn book as the pilgrims three times a year went up to Israel. They, of course, weren't simply about traveling. These hymns carry important truths about what life with God is like, how it begins, how we persevere in it, what we can expect. These were the things that are encoded inside these words. And when we think about our pilgrimage, our life with God, what it looks like to follow God in Jesus, these hymns instruct us and guide us in the way about what a mature faith looks like. And so what we find here are the elements and aspects of life with God, and they take us deeper into that pilgrimage. They've survived this test of time. And before us today, we have Psalm 21, again, an honest psalm about our pilgrimage, about this life with God. And it's important for us to ask the question as we come to Psalm 21, what exactly can we expect in the journey of the Christian life? And there's three things that God affirms for us inside of these words, inside of this hymn. And the first is that along the way, we will encounter trouble. If you follow in verse 1, I lift up my eyes to the hills. Now, frequently, when we hear those words, we think of something positive happening. But the hills were not a positive place in ancient Israel. There was one hill, one mountain that was a positive place. But on the way to Jerusalem, a pilgrim would encounter many hills and mountains where there was great danger. The mountains and the hills were an ominous place. 
See, in the ancient world, travel was not as easy as it is on an interstate today. We, of course, know that interstates are not necessarily safe. But passage in the ancient world was very precarious. If you were traveling for many weeks, you had to take large sums of money because you didn't have credit cards. And thieves and thugs particularly hid out in the mountains. This is the context of Jesus' parable of the Good Samaritan, of someone falling into the hands of robbers. It was common. And so the hills were a dangerous place. And so the pilgrim begins his song, I lift up my eyes to the hills. And what he is saying is that there's danger there, there's uncertainty. Where does my help come from? As I set out into that journey, into all that uncertainty, into all of that insecurity that lies before me, the pilgrim understands that he will encounter trouble, that life and the world in which we live in, compromised by sin, isn't safe. When we look at the hills of our lives as we journey with God, the threats and the uncertainties and the insecurities flood our hearts. They cause tremendous anxiety. They can cause despair. They can cause depression. We don't know our days. It becomes increasingly clear the older we get that we are not in control. Our world is predictable in one way. It's unpredictability. We feel that. There are strange diseases There are tragic accidents, there are pathology reports, there's relational betrayals, miscarriages, and difficult bosses. We experience all of the uncertainty and all the pains and all of the anxiety across every front of our lives. That's what's predictable. We're surrounded by trouble and concerns of trouble. And if we tried to number them and count them, we simply couldn't. And the psalmist affirms this, that we live in troubled times. He lifts up his eyes to the hills, and he sees it. The second thing that God affirms for us, though, is that along the way, we also encounter empty promises. You see, when he lifts his eyes up to the hills, not only does he see ominous threats, but there's something else particular to ancient Israel that's important to describe to you. Because it is on these same hills that the idolatrous shrines of the false gods were built. If you're familiar with your Old Testament, you'll know of these shrines. Baal and Ashtaroth and a whole assortment of other gods. And their shrines were always built on the tops of mountains. And so as the psalmist journeys, as he's on his pilgrimage and he lifts to the hills, he knows there's trouble and danger. And also he knows that this is where the false gods are. Because unfortunately in the land of Israel, they were not pure and clean. They never fully removed the gods from among them. And most likely at the time of the writing of this psalm, the people were thoroughly compromised and syncretized versions of the worship of Yahweh in which they also opened it up to all the other gods. After all, it was safest to keep all your bases covered. Because you see, ancient idolatry is really foreign to us in certain ways. And then it's so familiar in others. But this is the way it worked. Is that the gods, those that were created by human beings, were crafted in their own image to meet very basic needs. 
These gods address the basic and common things that all of us feel and are threatened by in life. War, drought, infertility, illness, or famine. These basic necessities, the idolatrous gods were designed to address. And so you would go to the shrine of Baal, who was particularly involved with rain and fertility, and you would participate in his chants, and you would participate in his strange liturgies, and you would make extravagant offerings to him, and then, only then, that God may condescend and decide to help you out. But Baal, of course, was known to be one who overslept. He wasn't one who necessarily heard your cries. You had to rouse him from sleep. And so we know from ancient studies that Baal worship was particularly rowdy because you had to wake him up. (laughs) But that is how ancient idolatry worked. Basic needs, things that promote anxiety and concern, troublesome things in our lives, and us then looking for something to placate it. What can we buy off? What can we do to make it better? That was the effort. And those were the delusions that lived on the mountains. Jeremiah in chapter 3 of his prophecy says this, Truly the hills are a delusion, speaking of the shrines. The commotion on the mountains, speaking of their liturgies. Truly in the Lord our God is the salvation of Israel. And so he is laying out that our salvation, our help is not at the mountain shrines. Where is our help? Our salvation is in the Lord our God. And so the message of the false gods was work really, really hard, wake us up from our slumber, and we may give you our attention. And friends, we can't escape the crisis. We hear the delusions, the false forms of hope, the false promises put in front of us, where we're told to put our hope in so many different things While our world has moved on from Baal and all of his other consorts, we really haven't moved on. We have all the modern trappings in which we offer ourselves, in which we offer our children, in which we offer our wealth in hope of addressing the uncertainty and the anxiety that comes along with life in a broken world. On that pilgrimage, we are tempted to go up to those shrines and pay our own price. But we can't escape the crisis, the crisis of false hope and promises, the crisis of uncertainty and trouble. No, they're present all along the way. And so the main question for us as we come to this psalm is how do we persevere in that journey? Where we have all of those false promises, those empty hopes, and where we have all of that trouble, how do we persevere in that pilgrimage? And the question that's asked in verse 1 is then answered in verse 2. The psalmist seeing all this trouble, from where does my help come? It's a very simple, honest, real question. And then he affirms himself in the answer. My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. This is the answer. How do we persevere? Our help, our keeper, as we'll find in the rest of the psalm, is the Lord, the one who created, the one who presently sustains, 
and the one who will recreate. That is the God who allows us to persevere. That is the God who orients all of our trouble. That is the God who sets the stage. And because of him, that's what the psalmist argues, because of him, we can persevere and endure. He is our helper. Now we find that six times in the remainder of the psalm, verses 3 all the way down through verse 8, six times we're told that God is our keeper. Keeper is a vast word, and he applies it in many different ways. But what we learn is that as keeper, he is our guide. He is our shelter. He is our defender. The keeper performs many different functions in our lives. And the rest of the psalm reinforces this over and over, saying perhaps the same thing from different angles in different ways. And some people find that tedious. But whenever we find a repetition like that in Scripture, we're to appreciate that there is a truth that we struggle to apprehend and to hold on to. And God wants to drive it home for us, deeply into our hearts, that He is our keeper. He's not a God who creates and steps back with disinterest. He's not the God of the deist who made a world and then simply removes Himself from it. Nor is He a God who wants you to convince him, to cajole him with your goodness, with your gifts, or with your fervency, to convince him that he should help you. That's not the kind of God he is. But rather the promise here is that God is our helper, God is our keeper, and he attends to our way. Follow with me in verse 3. We're told he will not let your foot be moved. He's our guide. He's watching the steps, the individual steps along your pilgrimage. Verse 4, we discover that he's vigilant and does not be, need to be aroused from sleep. Behold, he who keeps Israel neither slumbers nor sleeps. Moves on in verses 5 and 6 to explain that he is a shelter and a shade at our right hand. He protects us from the sun and the moon. In ancient Israel, that was particularly important because the sun and moon were so often deified and associated with some form of worship from the gods because they were powerful and controlled so much of ancient life. But God is a shade from the dangers there from the demonic powers, from all the things that are vested in them. He is shelter and shade, a refuge for us in trouble. And finally, in verses 7 and 8, we discover that he is our defender. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. These words in particular can be a challenge for people. Several months ago, a friend who was struggling with his faith said to me, God doesn't seem to keep me from all evil. He had real honest suffering in his life. He said, I'm not sure I can believe this. But here's the point of the words. The promise was never that we wouldn't have trouble. The psalm affirms the trouble. As he looks to the hills, the pilgrim knows that there's problems in the world that we live in a compromised and broken place. And God's promise is not that we will, not, we will not have evil around us. It will be present. But the promise is that evil will not overtake us, that evil will not overcome us, 
that we will go through the storms unassailed because God is keeper, because God is helper, that there is no illness, there is no accident, there is no evil that will have this power over us. But when we're honest in our private moments, and especially when we find evil at the door, when we look at the hills, and when that floods us with the emotions and the insecurity, the comment of my friend resonates with us at times. And the psalm also recognizes this part of human experience because it's real. It's important to affirm it. And this is why the psalm goes to such great extent to affirm for us that God is the keeper of his people, that God is your help. And in the midst of those dark nights where we experience that uncertainty, when we experience that insecurity, this is precisely what we must do. We must remind ourselves. We must preach this deeply to our own hearts and to our souls, to our own doubts, that God is the keeper. He's vigilant. He doesn't slumber or sleep. He's not forgotten us. There's some wisdom in all those ancient traditions that we have inherited from the church prior to us. As a young seminarian, I was first an intern at Second Presbyterian in Memphis, Tennessee, and I had a worship class that I had to fulfill for my seminary. And so my mentor, Sandy Wilson, handed me a stack of ten books and said, read these. <laughs> and it was my first education as to the history of liturgy and how the church had worshipped. And what sounded like was going to be an awful class became one of the richest and most life-giving things I'd ever done. I was reading through the liturgies in particular of John Calvin. And when I came to the beginning of his Genevan liturgy that he encouraged the people to worship through, the service began with these words, Our help is in the name of the Lord our God, the maker of heaven and earth. Every Sunday... They said the same thing. So if you think I'm repetitive, get over it. <laughs> but you see the point of the repetition. What is one of the greatest pastoral needs that you and I have? To know that the Lord is our helper. Because do you have trouble? Yes. The hills are around you. They're ominous and they're threatening. But our help is in the name of the Lord our God, the creator of heaven and earth. Our help is in his name. And the need for repetition is not simply to go through liturgical motions, but it's to, as working through those motions, to have these things written upon heart and soul. And for us, we know that God is our helper. And we're particularly convinced of that. Because the first and final reason that we know that God will never leave us or forsake us is because what he has done as our helper and keeper in sending Jesus Christ into the world. That's what he's done on our behalf. And so we can be confident. And this was the confidence of the Apostle Paul as he preached to the church in Rome. What shall separate us from the love of God? Who can bring a charge against God's elect? Can any trouble unseat you? Can any tribulation harm you? 
And his answer is that nothing can touch you. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Jesus Christ our Lord. Paul grounds the help. The fact that we're kept in one event. And that is in the life, the death, and the resurrection of one man, Jesus Christ. And in giving him, God has affirmed all of his goodness to you. That he watches your steps. That he defends your way and keeps you from all evil. That he attends to your prayers. That he's not looking for you to convince him to somehow come down and help him. That he watches over and keeps his people. He loves us in Jesus. And so be affirmed on the way of the pilgrimage as you encounter your troubles that your God is there and he's attuned to your needs. Let's pray. Father, we confess that it is an easy piece of theology to learn that you're our keeper, our helper. And yet in the midst of our trouble, in the midst of our trials, in the midst of sorrow, grief, and sadness, it can be difficult to believe. And so help us, God. Convince us today that you're our keeper, that nothing will assail us, no evil will overcome us as we hold fast to you. See us through all the various trials that even afflict us today. Be kind and gracious. Affirm for us that our foot will never sleep, never slip, because you are the one who never sleeps. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.